Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso here with the cars are Alex Dykes. Alex, let's jump straight into this. Uh, Tesla sales miss and price premiumization, the culmination mm. of a year in the life of the most exciting, for better or for worse, automaker in the business. Where is Tesla right now, for better or for worse? Ah, interesting question. Uh, all eyes are upon Tesla because they're the first new car company that's really actually been able to make a go of things and stay in business for any real length of time and produce millions of cars now. Uh, but, you know, I would say that a lot of the projections or a lot of the predictions and comparisons that swirl around Tesla are perhaps inaccurate or poorly framed. Tesla should be compared to BMW and Mercedes. Let me just say that one up front, um, because that is where their their average transaction price is. That's where the volume that they're targeting really is, et cetera. They're not a General Motors or a Ford or a Toyota. So I think some of those comparisons are a little funky. But they have had a very good quarter as far as uh, as far as revenue and uh, uh, profitability goes, compared to their history. So. You know, the sales are down a little bit, but uh, profitability is extremely good because of those price hikes. So I think that bodes well for the future of Tesla. Tesla needs to be able to make profit. They need to be able to retain some of that earnings and they need to be able to spend it on their R&D projects, some of which are fairly late. Uh, the semi, the truck, the roadster, they're all delayed versus when they were supposed to be produced. And I think that's because of this, this sort of redirection of, of Tesla's mission, which has been to try and, and uh, button down the financial hatches, as it were, and really make some money for a while. And it is exactly as you say, prices are high, up to 25% more than this time a year ago for some models. The way to look at Tesla sales uh, for this past quarter is that obviously it's a record in volume for the company. It by far surpasses the equivalent period in the past year. It wasn't quite what they or analysts mm -hmm. had hoped. Yeah. And there are a couple of subplots to this that make it a little bit difficult to reckon because at the same time we're seeing this miss versus estimates, we're also beginning to see some of the first ever incentives offered on Tesla cars in China, which is 25% of their business. We're seeing both incentives and price cuts at the same time. Yeah, and that's to be expected as Tesla continues. Tesla has, has always had an unusual business model with pricing. Uh, the prices go up, they go down, they do this very rapidly, sometimes in the same month. Who knows what's going on there? So much more pricing fluidity than we see in a traditional auto manufacturer where MSRPs are slow to change, generally only happen once a year, maybe mid-year pricing increases. Uh, Tesla has more flexibility because of the lack of dealer networks, so they can change the price tag at a moment's notice, basically, and they have. I think that some of that has been good for them in the United States. It has given them that ability to ratchet up the price tags, the the sell, sales price of the vehicles to respond to increases in commodity costs and and their their um, their other component costs. So that has really helped their their bottom line, their margin on the vehicles in the U.S. And in China, they have been responding to the general slowing market in China. Chinese auto market has definitely taken a huge, huge hit because of the country's zero COVID policies and the resulting just economic meltdown and drama that's going on over there in China. So I'm not too surprised by that. I would assume that we would see the exact same thing in the U.S. if our auto industry had that same problem. Uh, the U.S. industry has the opposite problem. We still have this, this underproduction versus demand. So even with higher interest rates, even with questionable market conditions in the United States, the most recent estimates that I've seen is that production in the U.S. is still about 1 million to 1 1.5 million units under actual demand. So everything that can be built is being purchased for almost any price you want to assign. Uh, there was a Cox Automotive survey out recently where they interviewed customers and they said they would theoretically be willing to pay up to $15,000 over MSRP to get, quote unquote, exactly what they wanted in a new car. 
face palm. By the yeah. way, I, if you guys out in cyberspace are watching the video version of this and wondering why I'm coming to you from my bunker with a five o'clock shadow, it's because I am pursuing my own zero COVID policy. <laughs> my goal is to go from one to zero. So I'm working my way through that right now, but I'm doing all right. Another thing important about the Chinese market right now is that unlike the U.S. market, where most of the EV alternatives are just getting started, um, there is a well-developed domestic mm -hmm. industry in China, and Tesla might be looking at a price war. It's even brought back its Chinese market referral service. Uh, so this might have um, an internal Chinese market dynamic that's a result of just how many muscular rivals there are to Tesla over there. Indeed, it is going to be interesting to see how that plays out and whether Tesla decides to go for a more premium strategy in China or whether they continue what they had been claiming, which was a lower cost model specifically for the Chinese market. That was where a lot of rumor mills were, were leading Tesla. And uh, I've always been of the opinion that for a small volume manufacturer like Tesla, remember that Tesla may have good sales numbers, they may have high profitability per vehicle, but we're talking about very small volume compared to Toyota or General Motors or Ford or Stellantis, et cetera, or Volkswagen even. The path to profitability for them is likely the same path to profitability as BMW and Mercedes. High MSRP, high margin, low volume products. Intrinsically, a, a Model S or a Model X can be more profitable than a Model 3. So your path to profitability for a modern manufacturer is to, to make it up in volume or to go for that premium customer. And because EVs are more expensive to build, just manufacturing costs are higher than, than ICE vehicles, it is not the most logical thing in the world to attempt profitability on, say, a $25,000 EV, as some have really hoped Tesla could create in the U.S. It seems much more likely that that could happen in China. But in China, you have car companies there that have much lower overhead costs. Uh, the ability to spread R&D costs over ICE platform vehicles and gasoline and, and, and EV and diesel platform vehicles together uh, so it's going to be a really hard road for Tesla to try and, and target those lower MSRPs. I would assume being a, a more premium brand is going to be easier. I mean, take a look at Porsche in China. They're doing relatively well because they are not trying to make affordable mainstream EVs. They're going to sell you a 911, they're going to sell you a Taycan, and they're all going to be really expensive. And it's interesting you mentioned this because Tesla's best bet at selling a cost-competitive car in the United States uh, maybe a late breaking interest in using some of the spare capacity at Giga Shanghai to actually send those cars over to the U.S. Because before the last inflation print came out this week, the surging U.S. dollar and overcapacity in China had created an interest in actually taking those Chinese built cars and bringing them over here as entry level models for Tesla's U.S. marketplace. I'm intrigued to see if they choose to do that, because the one problem with that would be uh, import costs, obviously, but also the lack of tax credit. So if theoretically you had a U.S. built Model 3, uh, even if it had a Chinese made battery pack, it would still get some portion of the federal tax credit next year. As long as the car is not over about $55,000 or the SUV around 80 some odd thousand dollars, you will get the tax credit. So Model X, uh, sorry, Model Y and Model 3 uh, should be in the party in the base trims. Model X and Model S are too expensive, so they will always be out of the party. But the moment you start manufacturing it overseas, you lose that ability to get at least half of the tax credit. And then, of course, if you have a fully assembled battery pack with materials sourced from the right locations, a base Model 3 could theoretically have a $7,500 tax credit. And that would be really good for, to, uh, for Tesla sales uh, for those base models if they could get that vehicle under that price point. That would be a different problem uh, for a North American battery pack, North American vehicle, and then, of course, the sourcing of those raw materials. And it's definitely something to think about because uh, Tesla's market share went from about 79 to 80% in 2020 to a little bit 
under 70% as of this year, even as their revenues have grown 58%. So most of the growth in the EV space in the US right now is in the premium space. So if Tesla wanted to try to reclaim some market share, uh, the low hanging fruit is the entry level where very few of the big players are putting their money right now. Uh, so we'll see where this goes. So much is going to depend on those incentives and whether, for example, a company like CATL wants to set up a US battery plant. Correct. Yes. And that is an interesting open-ended question because we do know, for instance, that the upcoming uh, EX90 from Volvo is going to use a CATL battery. Uh, That means that even though that is going to be built in South Carolina, the battery pack is not at the moment. So that would mean it would only qualify for a maximum of $3,750 tax credit. Um, it is an, it, the tax credits do pose an interesting challenge for car manufacturers as they're trying to balance these realities of the cost of production, where the materials are sourced, etc. cetera. Uh, good point is General Motors, who a lot of folks, myself included, assumed was heavily invested in the lobbying for the Inflation Reduction Act because they were super, super involved in that, that they were so interested in it because they knew they would qualify. Turns out... <laughs> However, that no General Motors EV will qualify for the full federal tax credit, according to their CEO, for two to three years. So that means Equinox EV won't get the full credit, neither will the Bolt or Bolt EUV. They will get half the credit for being made in the United States, but the battery pack sourcing and all of that, it's not uh, U.S.-centric enough or free trade country enough, so it's going to be out uh, out in the cold for now. Um, and Ford apparently seems to have a slightly better handle on this. We don't know all the details, but we do know apparently that there are going to be some trims, quote unquote, of Mach-E and F-150 that will get the full credit. Likely what they're going to be doing is saying, okay, we get 10% of our cobalt from Australia and the rest comes from China. So we're going to take that small percentage from Australia. We're going to make the battery pack in North America, and we're going to put it in these select trims of Mach-E and Lightning. And the rest of them are going to get Chinese sourced materials. They won't get the credit. These trims will. So that's going to be confusing for customers because nobody knows how this is going to be labeled. Is there going to be a big bright logo on the window sticker that says, hey, this one is the one you want to buy if you want the credit? Or is this going to be anybody's guess and somehow you're going to have to sort it out with the IRS later? Well, the government has tried, maybe not terribly effectively, to create a website where you could actually sort which cars are eligible for how much of this incentive. But unlike the previous EV incentive, which was pretty straightforward and frankly passed at a time when there weren't a whole lot of options on the market, the current Inflation Reduction Act EV incentives are very much industrial policy, which is a different thing from environmental policy because industrial policy is the kind of thing you see in Japan, in China, in Europe, where the first and foremost purpose is to actually spur industries and investment. And then the secondary intention here is is actually, I would say, the environmental effects. Uh, this this is very much a sort of let's beat our chest and show who's more patriotic type thing. <laughs> this is the politicians trying to show that they yeah. support U.S. industry. Long term, it will definitely have a huge impact on U.S. industry. But short term, it's going to cause a lot of disruption and confusion is the big thing. And the U.S. government website, we don't know whether it will be trim specific because right now it seems that it's just based on country of manufacture to meet the current requirements. Once they go to that sourcing part, that's that's going to be the tricky one. How do I know that this, this nearly identical Mach-E on the lot, how do I know that 20% of its cobalt came from Australia versus 50% came from Australia versus the one next to it that might have been 5% from Australia. What I would love to know is just who's responsible for keeping the accounting of all this. Because mm-hmm. when we when we got new NAFTA, they had those baselines for what the workers had to make in the plants in Mexico and how much of the car had to be assembled in the U.S. and Canada, how many of the parts had to come from the U.S. And I was just wondering, like, well, who's keeping track of this? What is the accounting authority who has the ability to measure and then apply consequences. So this is really a huge head scratcher, which is why I think if you're looking to buy an EV right now, just assume you're going to pay the full price and consider anything you get to be gravy beyond that. Any incentives? Yep, that is a problem. The uh, the likely the 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 most likely candidates to get the full credit, uh, seemingly uh, oddly enough, would be Tesla if they can get those 
those batteries in the correct vehicles because it looks like the Panasonic batteries, they may meet those requirements right away, uh, at least for the first year. So if they can come in on price target, that might work. Or you could just do what I would do if I were getting into the EV space, which is buy a used Chevy Bolt. There you of go. Course you <laughs> of course you would. I'm a practical person. I have the Bolt with a V. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. You cannot talk about Tesla without talking about Elon Musk. For better or for worse, his mm. purchase of Twitter, is it a bonus, a drag, or neutral for the electric car movement? Ooh, interesting question. Politics get involved in this. Uh, politics and automotive stuff. He, ooh, sticky he topic. Away from it, so, we uh, so I would say that the Twitter deal, not terribly helpful for uh, let's be honest, for anybody <laughs> other than the Twitter shareholders that got a sweetheart buyout deal. Twitter shareholders, they rocked. Uh, of course, most of that was institutional investment that rocked because there weren't really many mom and pops that just happened to own that many shares of Twitter. Um, who else got shafted in this process? Ter certainly Tesla shareholders, because yeah. the Tesla share price has not gone anywhere great since uh, Elon had had to unload billions and billions of share, uh, sorry, of dollar value of, of Tesla stock in order to complete the Twitter transaction. Um, and then there is Elon's tweeting, which is an entirely different problem. Um, Elon's tweeting probably does not help anybody that associates Tesla and Elon. If you are fortunate enough to be able to separate these two entities from one another in your brain, then I'm sure it's just fine because they haven't had any real impact on Tesla's actual performance or the vehicles, etc. Um, I have no doubt that Elon is some kind of genius, but he's not a PR genius. Now, here's the thing with Elon Musk. He's not big on self-restraint. He's definitely an engineering genius. I mean, he's had enough successes to make that point. But he's also got 10 kids by multiple different women. He can't seem to hold his fire when it comes to revenge tweeting. Mm -hmm. And he's now getting into an industry he doesn't understand very well. He's not disrupting some 100-year-old smokestack industry like auto production or a historic government monopoly like spaceflight. Yep. He's getting into a space where the people already understand tech pretty well. They've been doing this since 2006 at Twitter. Um, his PayPal experience isn't super relevant because they've been managing communities. They've been dealing with advertisers. Mm -hmm. They've been experimenting with just how much moderation you can get away with um, or what the minimum might be to keep everyone happy. It's a very difficult thing to do without institutional memory. And he's already fired about half of that institutional memory, which is yep. hugely distracting, like you said, because... Tesla shares from their peak within the last year have fallen 52%. And if you got in anywhere near the peak, you've been burned <laughs> horrendously. Yeah. I mean, like, like Freddy Krueger scars, like it's that kind of burn. Yeah, um, it's bad. But again, mainly institutional investors. So uh, does this affect the EV car industry? Probably not, but not great if you're a Tesla shareholder. Does it affect Tesla owners? Definitely not. Um, it is tricky. I will say Elon is an interesting character because Tesla would not be Tesla without Elon. But then there are a lot of things where Tesla could be better without Elon. Um, you know, the the advocacy around electrification and climate change, et cetera, is typically what uh, what EV owners have liked about that. But the rest of Elon's politics doesn't really seem to align with the the green notion behind Tesla. It could be that perhaps Elon's moves may expand that reach to a different demographic that maybe is not so green-centered. Uh, it's hard to tell. I will say that some of, and this is going to be horribly controversial, but I don't find all of Elon's actions so novel and so whatever. Um, you know, Tesla's innovation was not reinventing the car. It's a car Companies have been making cars for over 100 years. Elon did not reinvent the production of the car. He did not successfully reinvent quality control for a car. They're pretty, pretty poorly constructed versus most mainline luxury car companies with an average transaction price over 60 grand. Um, that is not, he hasn't really invented software in the way that we would construct that in a vehicle. What he has done is apply a 
tech bro attitude towards car design and car software, which is what I think has driven them. So it's the damn, that's cool. I want that. Um, I don't care whether it's logical or sensible or whatever. It's cool. We should do that. And there is definitely novelty in that. And that is what has propelled them. So EVs existed before Elon. They were boring. Um, they were efficient. They were ugly. Uh, Tesla said, we should have that and we should make it cool. That's the concept. But the actual construction development of the car, very, very normative as far as cars go. Um, Updatability, connected services, apps, that sort of thing, those all existed before Tesla. Tesla just made them cooler. So when you apply that to Twitter, which was already kind of a techie industry kind of thing, can you make it work? Can you make it better? Turns out so far, no. <laughs> yeah, it's not off to a great start. And I'll say this, if you're a Tesla employee or a Tesla car owner or a Tesla investor, you're just hoping that this hobby that he's got going, because let's be honest, Tesla has now made money more years than Twitter has. And Twitter's mm -hmm. been around since 2006. Twitter is a money loser. It's low volume. It's small balls. And he offered 38% more than yeah. it was worth at the time he tendered his offer. Mm -hmm. So the question is just, does this compromise Tesla? And it sort of brings you to that question of whether there can be Tesla without Elon. Has he institutionalized enough of the innovation, the disruptive attitude, the irreverence that other people he's employed can continue that even if his attention is elsewhere? Because there are some things mm -hmm. Tesla needs to worry about right now. Tesla needs to worry about getting that plant in Berlin operational. Because right now, China is its main export hub to Europe. And who knows how long politics will allow that to continue. Um, you've got a truck that you need to deliver claiming that people should be getting this truck within a year when it's basically vaporware. If you're launching a truck in the U.S. market, then you're launching your most important product. And it doesn't appear to be anywhere near ready for delivery. And then finally, you've got to understand that in China, he's entering an absolutely cutthroat price war situation against companies that have far lower fixed costs. Yep. So if I'm a Tesla investor, I'm worried about this stuff. The, mm -hmm. the distractions, the tweets, um, the pissy social media posts and the revenge firings, whatever. The question is just how does the Twitter focus draw away his attention from these pressing problems that Tesla has now? I am curious to see how this goes. I could see a world where it ultimately ended up being helpful because Elon has had to divest a lot of shares. He's still a very large owner of, of Tesla, make no doubt. He has a lot of lot of a personal investment in there uh, as far as number of shares that he's been awarded and, and just uh, has. So on the one hand, he's still deeply invested, but on the other hand, if he decides to pull back, they would have the opportunity to hire a CEO that is less Twitter focused, shall we say, less controversial, just does his job and does not does not engage in the drama that that Elon can engage in. And that may help Tesla in the long run. If they could have someone that would just knuckle down and focus on the Gigafactory, focus on the product, focus on making customers happy, delivering that experience that they expect, that could be excellent in the long term for Tesla. And he could hang out as the ideas guy, if you will. Um, and the ideas guy could be important. He is his biggest benefit is that Elon is an ideas guy that is unconstrained by logic or external influence. Um, there are lots of ideas guys out there. Most of them are employees rather than the employer. So if your ideas guy works for you, you have the ability to say, no, I don't like that or whatever. Um, Elon is the the guy in charge of, of everything and the ideas guy. So he's the one that says, nope, this is an idea. It might be a bad one, but we're going to do it. And if it doesn't stick, we'll just throw it away and try something else. Yeah, so I think that's pretty much where it is right now. I would say there's absolutely no damage to the electric car movement from his focus on Twitter. The real question is just whether Tesla becomes one preoccupation among many. Because mm -hmm. most of his status as the world's richest man is tied up in his ownership of Tesla stock. From awards from the board, from splits in the stock in the past. And he's got to understand at some point that whatever he wants to accomplish with Twitter, the source of his power is his ownership of Tesla stock. And the value of that is based on the success of Tesla. So we mm -hmm. shall see. It's an interesting period.
Yeah, I mean, will he be known as you know America's Clive Sinclair from you know the the Sinclair Company in 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 Britain and all of their investments, or will this be more long lasting? Will he end up being Bill Gates in a way? I I don't know. I don't know if those ten kids are going to be regarded. You know, those ten kids and their heirs are going to be regarded like the Rockefellers or anything. Like, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think you're talking about like a long term Musk dynasty, considering at least half those kids want nothing to do with him. But who knows? Maybe I'll be surprised. Mm-hmm. Maybe he'll yeah. place his kids with robots and hope he found us all. Speaking of 2023, what automotive trends are we going to be watching next year? Ah, interesting. Uh, I think we're going to be seeing more of the same. It looks like we are going to be getting more EV trucks. It looks like we're going to be getting more plug-in hybrids, especially from Stellantis. Um, And we're probably going to be seeing finally some more small trucks, I think, in the United States. Lots of rumors continue swirling around this, whether Toyota is going to create one, whether Stellantis is going to bring one of their models from South America to the United States or something all new. Whether it's next year or not, I think we're going to see that same sort of thing. And I suspect we're going to see a pretty substantial slide in the sales of sedans continuing next year. Um, Part of that is based on historical trends. And part of that is based on the fact that there are going to be a few fewer sedans next year, most likely. And some of the new sedans we've seen seem a little bit boring. Yeah. And it's not just a diminishing market, but it's going to be a very competitive space because we're going to see for the first time in quite a while a full year declines in the price of used cars. So people who maybe want sedans would be buying them used in the first place off a lease, uh, particularly with luxury brands where so many cars are perpetually coming Mm -hmm. off of leases. Uh, The other thing that's important to note for the year 2023 is that we may start to see a return of discounts and incentives on some models. And I'm thinking particularly uh, those mid-sized to large sedans you were talking about just now. Mm-hmm. Uh, used cars were up 40% at their peak in the post-COVID marketplace. Year to date, that is from this time last year, they're down 10.6%. And I think we're going to continue to see used car values fall. We're also going to see incentives on unpopular models. And one victim of this has already been Carvana. If you look at what's yeah. happened in the used car space, uh, they were down 48%. That, we're talking the total market cap of the company was down 48% in two days of trading this past week. Year to date, they're down 97%. They've gone from having a valuation over $60 billion last year to, by some estimates, a valuation as low as $1 billion right now. There is even Tesla's 52% fall looks minor compared to what's basically an implosion of Carvana. And that's the same for all used cars retailers because so much of the profit has fallen out of the space as the demand has gone away. Yep. And they're sitting on lots of used car inventory that they've overpaid for, most likely. Interest rates are not going to help the used car purchasing either because interest rates are, are relatively high for used cars compared to new cars. New cars are still getting interest rate deals, even though new car sales haven't needed that that buoying effect. So that is going to be a problem. Um, also, we do see a few focus, uh, a few manufacturers still focused on inexpensive vehicles, which I think is going to be really an interesting segment to take a look at next year. Uh, we have the Chevy Trailblazer, which I think is excellent. That's going to continue for 2023. Its price tag has been narrowed a little bit and brought a little bit higher because we have the Chevy Trax on board, which is basically a, a pregnant station wagon styled like a crossover that is going to be very, very inexpensive. Uh, under $25,000 in all forms, including destination. Uh, we also still have manufacturers like uh, like Kia with a new Seltos for 2024. That's relatively inexpensive. Um, we have the Nissan Versa continuing and the Nissan Kicks. Those are very inexpensive as well. And some of those really inexpensive models have seen decent sales, uh, not necessarily sales increases, but I guess uh, sales windows, you know, the amount of time on dealer lots drastically dropping because demand seems to be high. Whether or not production is keeping up, we don't know, but demand seems to be definitely high for some of these relatively inexpensive, especially fuel efficient models. And that's a fact. If you look at, I mentioned it earlier, the Chevy Bolt. Well, the Bolt and the Bolt EUV underwent massive price cuts of six to $7,000. And even with the stop sale order at the beginning of the year with the battery replacement, they are now on track to have their best year ever. So mm-hmm. we are seeing a lot of interest in cars. 
uh, for which interest rates and loan volume and loan size are less of a factor. It's also important to remember that a lot of cheaper cars are used cars. And I always talk about used cars as much as I do because of that and because of the fact that the used car market's about 39 million a year in the United States, whereas we're going to see 14 to 16 million cars sold in any given year on the new side, which is why those um, those used cars are so in well, they're so important just because of the volume of sales that they represent and the effect on trends that they have. Mm-hmm. Yep. Remember, no one can buy that used car unless you bought it new. <laughs> That's well, I'll also say this used cars have become more and more of a mainstream factor in the market as leases have become a bigger and bigger yes. part of the marketplace. Because it's one thing for an automaker that sells new cars OEM to bring back a car with an agreed residual. It's another thing entirely to offer trade money for brands you don't sell, which you're then going to either try to fire sale off the front of your lot or send to auction. So the CPO thing of cars coming off the lease is a modern creation. And it's also one of the reasons that used cars are now more respectable than they were because the CPO Mercedes, Audi, BMW has a lot more, how should I put this, prestige to it. Then yeah. buying a car off a buy here, pay here lot. Yep. And everybody's getting in on the game. Pretty much every mainstream manufacturer out there has some form of CPO program or another with a you know, new car, essentially like warranties. The structure is a little bit different technically, but they're theoretically backed by the full faith and credit of the vehicle manufacturer. So you buy it at the same dealer. You buy the Honda CPO at the Honda dealer. You take it back to the Honda dealer for service. Um, but you are going to be paying more for that Honda as a result than if you just bought it from your buddy down the street that listed it on Craigslist. And we are seeing companies like Honda, for example, start to introduce CPO programs that are extremely loose about the conditions they apply to the vehicles. Age and mileage limitations <laughs> used to apply are now being relaxed, and we're seeing several different levels of CPO. We're seeing Honda and Acura doing this. I believe we're seeing Ford doing it as well, where you could have cars with as little as six months of CPO warranty on them uh, with vehicle ages from seven to 10 years. So we'll continue to see this trend in a 2023. And I think we're going to see more car companies create the second tier of used cars within their CPO programs. We may also see more companies announcing U.S. production. We know that EV production in the U.S. is very important for incentive reasons. Based on the Inflation Reduction Act, you need to have a lot more U.S.-made content. And so we've seen the likes Mm -hmm. of the Hyundais and the VinFasts and the Polestars already declare that production is coming. We may see the announcement of more factories and production contracts for brands uh, that have not already made these plans openly. Indeed, yes. And that really does seem to be the general trend lately in the automotive industry. There was a time where these jobs left the U.S. and the manufacturing plants left the U.S. Now, by and large, they are, generally speaking, coming back to at least North America. The U.S. not necessarily specifically, but jobs are certainly in production for new vehicles is definitely coming back to North America for a variety of factors, even excluding some of these tax uh, deals. For instance, Volvo, BMW, and Mercedes, the European car companies, they've been bringing manufacturing to the U.S. over the last 10 years or so. Not because of EVs, but because of currency fluctuation concerns, which is an interesting twist. And uh, Volvo uh, was doing this again. They're the most recent European manufacturer to bring it. And that was entirely based on currency fluctuation. And uh, interestingly enough, their Chinese ownership. So back before Volvo went public again, uh, Geely, their parent company, their chairman was uh, really firm on this, that uh, Volvo needed to follow the general European mold and not make cars in China, as many people had assumed they would start doing, uh, but actually build them in the U.S., build them where you sell them was the model, uh, to try and insulate the brand from currency fluctuations, which has actually been a problem for Volvo and especially for Jaguar Land Rover uh, over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, If you're a small volume manufacturer for people that don't necessarily know, if you're building your car in, you know, say, let's say the United Kingdom, Uh, historically, and you're trying to sell it in the United States, the relative value of the dollar and the pound one year to the next is going to affect your your volatility of of pricing and and profit. 
Um, this was a problem for Volvo specifically because Sweden was never on the euro. Uh, if you're a European company that's building in Germany or France or whatever, the euro is pretty stable in its relationship to the dollar. Uh, if you're building your car in uh, in England, this is a problem uh, for some folks it, because you're exporting your car to the United States. They're paying you in dollars. So for them at the moment, this is good because the, the pound is is in the toilet. Not a good place for the currency to be. But it does mean that that relative value is actually good for Jaguar Land Rover. Your $60,000 car is bringing you more pounds when you're bringing those pounds back to the UK, helping you pay your employees, et cetera. But if you have a currency that is becoming stronger versus the value over time, as the kroner was in Sweden for a while, then that meant that Volvo was making less profit with every year that went by on their wares. So to insulate against that, you build them in the US, you then convert that currency, the, only the profits, you convert that currency to your home currency, um, and you take that profit home. And even though the profit will change year on year, that fluctuation is less than it would be if the car, the entire car was built near your original home market and then exported. Um, so we're going to see more and more of that, I think, as people worry about currency fluctuations on the open market. And then it's then aided by this, this uh, incentive, if you will, to build in North America. So the Korean companies are going to be the latest to hop on board. They have been building in the U.S. for a while, but they always built their lower volume products in their domestic market factories. And that does not appear to be the case anymore. They're, they uh, have admitted that they're going to scurry along and bring Ionic 5 and EV6 production to the U.S. Uh, likely some of the Genesis models may be built there as well. There's an enormous amount of EV vehicle and battery plant construction being done right now in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Georgia uh, for many different brands, and particularly for the Koreans, I believe, going up in Georgia right now, mm -hmm. uh, for Ford in particular in Kentucky and Tennessee. And I would not be shocked to see more commitments next year uh, paired with commitments to either joint venture mines or contracting with US-based mines uh, to actually extract the minerals necessary for the raw materials. Indeed. And that's going to be the next phase of this, I think, is some of these uh, these mining contracts and mining operations that we'll see. I would be surprised if we saw an enormous explosion in the U.S., but we probably will see an enormous explosion in Australia, uh, where a yeah. lot of these rare earth minerals are, are able to be mined right now. They have a larger installed base of mining, so expanding that's probably going to be easier. Whether or not Australia will allow that legislatively is an open-ended question because Australia was not exactly consulted in this deal either. Let's just say nobody was with the IRA. Uh, so, But it will have an enormous impact on Australian operations because they're currently one of the larger rare earth materials extractors in the world. It also will have a huge impact on countries like South Korea where battery packs can be manufactured under this arrangement. So if your minerals are extracted from Australia, they're refined, say, in the Philippines, and then they are manufactured into a battery in South Korea, then the batteries are built, brought to the US and everything's assembled here. This is a path that is highly likely and definitely will qualify for the tax credits. Um, so interesting unintended consequences, if you will, from our trade partners that weren't consulted about this at all. Um, which, meant that, which meant that they weren't prepared to ramp up anything in advance of this. Yeah, I'm not qualified to give you guys financial advice, but this might be a good time to buy Rio Tinto stock. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely a time to invest in, in any sort of mining, mining for uh, rare earth materials, wherever that might happen. And maybe don't make your purchase just yet if you're a consumer looking to buy an EV right now, because we have talks ongoing with both European and Korean politicians mm -hmm. about whether our Inflation Reduction Act incentives are even legal under international trade agreements and, and you know, conventions. Uh, plus, there is at least one bill making its way through Congress that would simply restore a blanket $7,500 incentive to electric vehicles. So depending on what happens with diplomacy, what mm -hmm. happens WTO and what happens in Congress, you could wind up getting a huge amount of extra incentive money just by waiting six to eight months. If I read my crystal ball, I would say the European legislation is definitely unlikely to pass. Um, 
the U.S. does not have a free trade agreement with the European Union. That's the big reason there. So the World Trade Organization rules don't really apply to that setup, it appears, uh, in the same way that they might to Korea. So I think that it's actually a little bit more likely, still probably uh, under 50-50, I would say, but more likely that South Korea might get at least some sort of temporary exemption on this because of their free trade status or have some future agreement worked out with quotas or trade caps or whatever. I would not be overly surprised if we saw that at some point where maybe Korea got an extra year or two to, to, to be on the team because uh, sales of EV6, Nionic 5, uh, that were, they were definitely caught off guard by that. And they really had committed to a large number of, a uh, large volume, I guess, of sales to the U.S. Now, I will say that that somehow tied with this is the reality that we don't actually know how many people qualify for the full federal tax credit? Um, how many people qualify for it? How many people ultimately apply for it? How many people get it? How big of a factor this truly is on the purchase of your next vehicle? The reasons for this are multifold. Um, if you are a middle-class family, single-income owner, uh, single-income family, home-owning, two kids, three kids, living in the Midwest, it is entirely likely that you don't get any tax benefit out of this because you might not pay much in federal taxes to begin with. Um, a quick Googling of some IRS averages would indicate that if you're making between seventy-five dollars and $90,000 adjusted gross income in, say, Michigan, and you own your own home and have just two kids, you might end up with a federal tax liability of zero or under $1,000 at the end of the year. So your EV purchase, you might not get any benefit at all. Um, and that's before we really factor in mortgage interest deductions into that, that picture. Um, the child tax credit's two grand a pop. If you are in $90,000, $75 to $90,000 income earning, the average tax liability, according to the IRS last year, last year was under $6,000. So, yeah, you know. In other words, if you're going to base your purchase decision on your accountant's advice, first, make sure your accountant speaks car. Second, yep. get it in writing because the tax man might come knocking at some point. Yep. And also, also actually really pay attention to your tax situation. You know, I, I've spoken to a lot of people recently about this, actually in, in my own industry, in the automotive industry. It was just at an event and uh, there was like, yeah, you know, I was really bummed about that because I wanted the whatever I was going to get the $7,500 tax credit. And I was like, well, you know, I know you, you live in, in Detroit. Um, do, do you actually pay enough for that? Like, I know you've got kids and a house, like do the math. What's this? What's this look like for you? And they actually sat there and thought about it and looked up and they did their math and they were like, oh, you know, I guess I wouldn't have had anything anyway, so it doesn't matter. And that may be the reality for more people than you think, because either the the new EV that you're thinking about now is too expensive, so it won't qualify under that, or you make too much money because the rich were the people that got the tax credit to begin with. That's the big thing a lot of people didn't think about is that the Bolt owner that was getting the tax credit, on average, they were probably, uh, you know, adjusted gross incomes of over $200,000 because that's the demographic that was buying EVs, generally speaking, you know, two, three years ago. Uh, the demographic has softened a little bit and it has now become a little bit broader. But by and large, EV owners tend to be upper income, middle class, home owning, etc., so whether or not you get the tax credit, um, you know, it's going to depend on a wide variety of factors, not just the location of the vehicle's manufacturer. Now, if you've stuck with us through all this EV talk and you are a red-blooded gasoline guy, we've got some red meat for you now because we're going to talk about a new vehicle an older vehicle and how they compare to each other. It is the Ford Raptor R. We're talking about the new Raptor R and we're comparing it to the well-known Dodge Ram TRX, the T-Rex. Alex, what can you tell me about the Raptor R? Shouldn't just be a Raptor or something like that. Should be the Raptor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was just in Michigan driving the Raptor, and uh, I came away quite impressed. This is the engine I think the Raptor should always have had. Let's be honest. Um, the Turbo V6 is lovely, and Ford spent a lot of time defending the Turbo Raptor. And if you have a Turbo Raptor, I'm sure it's just fine. Uh, don't drive the Raptor R. You might be sad. Um, it sounds absolutely fantastic. It sounds better than the regular Raptor. But also, if you are 
doing the things that the raptor is designed for. It's Baja running, you know, dune jumping, you know, playing on the sand dunes, etc. That's what it was made for, which is why I was in Grand Rapids or Grand Rapids adjacent, I should say, uh, you know, playing on the sand dunes with the Raptor R. Uh, that is exactly why you want the supercharged V8. There's no lag. The low end torque is fantastic. If you want that ability to just start on a sand dune, you know, just romp on the throttle and go with no bog because, you know, you have ginormous tires on it. That's where the supercharged engine is, is a fantastic thing. Uh, the 10-speed automatic is really well suited for that. And I think it the, the whole combination is just the most fun thing you can have in a pickup truck format. If you can afford one, because it is well over $100,000, mind you. But it's uh, also loaded. It comes loaded. It is, comes fully loaded. Uh, the That is the big reason to buy the TRX. The TRX is going to feel heavier. Um, it's going to feel a little bit older in some ways. I do like the interior in the TRX a bit more. I think that the infotainment software is a little bit behind Ford's, but I think the display arrangement I like a little bit better. The tablet arrangement I think is a little bit more attractive. I found the TRX to be a bit more comfortable as well, but it drives bigger. It uh, comes across as a little bit less polished. Remember, this is Ram's first Baja truck, and Ford's got you know a, a, a track record under their belt, shall we say, for uh, for Baja sure. trucks. Um, which one would I get, I think, would largely come down to availability and price. I suspect I would probably either get the TRX or the regular Raptor because Raptor Rs are going to be selling so far over MSRP. You need to bring a big fat checkbook and be prepared to wait a really long time. Yeah, I was. I would say there is a third man in this picture. And if you want like a hugely antisocial, ultra high performance off-road truck, you've got to at least consider the Hummer EV if you can get on a waiting list. But there's a lot to love. Yeah. I, I consider these three things to be more similar than they are dissimilar. But there's a lot to love about the Raptor R. The first and yeah. biggest is that it's only 50 pounds heavier than the EcoBoost Raptor, which is remarkable when you consider that it's using the GT500 power plant and you've now got five, well, I mean, let's face it, 640 pound-feet of torque and 700 horsepower. And unlike the T-Rex, this thing screams all the way to a 7,000 RPM redline that feels very, very sports car. It also weighs 700 pounds less than the T-Rex. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you look at the power to weight ratio, it's about 8.6 for the Raptor R and about 9.6 for the T-Rex. And you're going to feel that in everything from, you know, how it flies, if you want to jump dunes, to how it accelerates, to the dynamics. Neither one of these things are going to carve up an autocross course, but you will have all around better dynamics mm -hmm. than you can feel in the Raptor. Plus, on top of that, if you're all about ground clearance and wheel size, Advantage Raptor R. You've got 13.1 inches of ground clearance to, I think, 11.8 with the T-Rex. And you've got 37s from the factories. This thing is very well optimized mm -hmm. for what it does. It benefits from that Raptor lineage going back to 2009. This is not their first rodeo. That said, if you are mostly just going to drive it sedately, what Alex says is absolutely mm -hmm. correct. This generation of Ram 1500 is the most luxe pickup on the market. The pieces, the fit, the feel will be more expensive inside. Even if you're not going to drive it sedately, I think there's a, still a solid argument for, for the TRX. You could put 37s on your TRX if you wanted, and it would be just fine. You would get the increased clearance uh, that you might seek there. Because remember, when we're talking about critical elements of clearance, in these trucks, it's differential to ground. And the only way to increase that is with a larger diameter tire, because that is the critical component there. So you could end up with a, a relatively similar kind of clearance in your T-Rex. The 700 pounds is definitely a bit of a problem depending on what you're doing with the truck. But when we're talking about a truck that's well over 5,000 pounds, it's a, a tiny bit less important. You can have 700 pounds in cargo and passengers in there and mix it up. And, and depending on the situation, you could be in a similar boat. I would say I would disagree wholeheartedly on the Hummer EV being in the same family, though, because the Hummer is so fantastically heavy. It's almost twice as heavy as the Raptor R. And that means that I would never, ever, ever put a Hummer on a sand dune. Uh, ever, 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 ever. You will sink into the sand. I don't care how low you put the pressure on your tires. Um, you need to be prepared to have a Huey on standby to get that Hummer recovered because you simply will not pull it out with 
anything else. Um, you know, if you have a TRX, you might bog down a little bit more in the sand than the Raptor and your, your buddy with the Raptor will be able to help recover you. And you'll all laugh at it and tease each other that your, your Ram was too heavy. If you have a buddy with a Hummer EV and, and he goes out there to, you know, the sleeping bear dunes parks, you know, whatever, no, I don't think they allow OHVs there, but you know, the park adjacent to it, um, up there in Michigan, or if you're in Baja or wherever you are and you get your Hummer stuck. Nobody is going to get you out of that other than a helicopter. Yeah, you're going to need more than a Huey. You're going to need yeah. like an MV-22. Mm-hmm. But I will say this. It is still a very off-road capable truck. You just want to make sure there's some terra firma under you. It's the element of performance that most people will experience, which is the silly, stupid, flat throttle and accelerate in a straight line yeah. sensation. And on that basis, on price, on look, on stance, on attitude, not on payload and towing, but on everything else, I really do see the Hummer having a lot more in common with these two. It depends uh, on the kind of off-roading you're doing. I would that that's that's an important critical thing. Um, if you're if you're a regular off-roader, then you know weight is very very important. So you know a. Imagine taking a Wrangler, which is a relatively lightweight thing. I'm talking two-door Wrangler, two-door short wheelbase Wrangler, everything that you can add from the factory to it, take it off-road. It's going to be an incredibly capable vehicle. Now, imagine if you took that same vehicle and made it weigh four times more than it did. You're not going to be able to get up that rock face. You're not going to be able to climb the same grades. You're going to get stuck in the mud. You're not going to be able to ford the river. That is exactly the problem with the Hummer EV. Um, it, yes, it is theoretically capable on paper, and it has good ground clearance numbers. It turns tightly. I would never take a Hummer EV on any kind of off-road trail where you did not have really excellent ability to recover, <laughs> where you could not get a tow truck, um, because at the launch event, they managed to get Hummer EVs stuck, and it was a big problem to get them unstuck. And uh, I have already seen some reports with Hummer EVs stuck on off-road courses in the wild. Um, oh, I don't doubt it, but you know, just it's, remember, it's hard Raptor to get them flies. out. The Raptor flies, but you can go on YouTube and you can find videos of guys trying to jump their Raptor over like six cars and it doesn't end well. So yes, it does. Anytime, true. This is true. Yeah. Anytime you surpass the capability of your vehicle, you're on your own. Um, I would say just in general, if it's going to end better than trying to jump your Hummer EV over anything. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> that would be like watching, I don't know, that, that'd be like watching an airliner coming down. But I, I still think that the person who's considering a T-Rex or a Raptor R would consider the Hummer if he had the money for it. Uh, and I'll say this too. Um, it's better distributed weight than the Hummer. Whereas with the T-Rex, <laughs> the T-Rex, first T-Rex of all, is heavy up front, yeah. Weight. Some, I mean, you can put two people in it, get it damn close to 7,000 pounds. So it's very heavy. But the Hemi is, among other weird anachronistic things, an iron block V8, which means Mm -hmm. unlike the engine and the Raptor R, you've got an old school iron block. And more than that, it's an iron block with port fuel injection. So that 700 pound difference between the Raptor R and the T-Rex, it's almost Mm -hmm. all over the front axle, at least with the Hummer. The weight is down pretty low. So if you want to just do stupid things on the road or on hard pack with your performance truck, the Hummer would probably feel more natural in the distribution of its weight, even if the weight itself is, you know, in the class of a, I mean, what could I even compare it to? Like a a Bradley fighting vehicle. We should say that the, the Raptor R is only 500 pounds lighter. Let's one, one correction there. It's 500 pounds lighter than the, uh, than the TRX. It's still a pretty big difference. Um, but yeah, 500 pounds. The the weight difference I- I- between the two is intriguing because remember that the Ram is a steel truck and the F-150 is an aluminum truck. So the weight difference is not as front biased as you might think in, in the TRX. Uh, the weight balance is substantially similar TRX to Lightning um, and, oh, sorry, to, to, uh, to F-150 Raptor R. And depending on the format, an F-150 actually may have more weight in terms of balance on the front than the rear because the bed is also aluminum. Um, So that is an important thing to keep in mind. But keep in mind, though, that if you are comparing it to a standard Raptor, the difference is only going to be 80 pounds, which is kind of amazing. Uh, 210 pounds. Is it it really? I was under the impression. Yeah, 210 pounds. 
Maybe it's just the engine that's eighty. Then I don't know where yes, I got. Yes, I think it's the. I think there's there's some components that are, uh, because the 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 trouble there is is making an appropriate apples to apples comparison since there's so much standard on the Raptor R that is optional on the regular Raptor. It depends on how you how you fiddle that number, because the thirty sevens are standard, the beadlock wheels are standard, um, the interior no. upgrades are standard. It might be in some way dependent on whether or not you option the sunroof, because as I understand, aside from custom paint, that's the only major option on the list. Right. Yep. The uh, the seats, the upgraded seats are standard on the Raptor R. Um, the 37s and B-lock wheels. 37s are pretty heavy, so that adds a decent amount of weight. Okay. Well, so I still think that if I had my choice among performance trucks, I'd probably skip this, that, and the Hummer and go for the Rivian, but that's just me. If you, if yeah, you interesting dunes, twist. If you want <laughs> to run twist. dunes, the Rivian's heavy, but it's not so heavy that you have to worry about sinking to the center of the earth and, you know, 800 horsepower and all. Uh, yeah, I'm a little torn on that one. I dislike the way the Rivian feels off-road. Uh, there are some advantages to that motor setup, but I don't like the feel. I'm hoping that they can work on that over time. It seems to be pretty capable. I have not tried it in a sandy type situation. I would assume the curb weight could be a bummer. I would also love to see what the lightning would be like on the dunes, but uh, we don't have a we don't have a lightning raptor. Yeah, if you're staying entirely on road, then you're going to be looking at the Rivian or the Lightning. Uh, but if you want to go off road and you want to fly around, it, it's pretty much got to be the T Rex mm -hmm. or it, it's got to be the Raptor R. My question is is Toyota ever going to get in this picture? Uh, is, is Chevrolet ever going to do something that's not more of a traditional rock crawler? Mm -hmm. Because if you look at, you know, GM off road pickups, things like the AT4X and the ZR2. They can do some light duty pre running, but not they're not full fledged dune flyers like what you're getting from Ford and uh, mm -hmm. T Rex. I, um, I act to be honest, I am surprised that Ram bothered to create a TR a TRX rather than a more rock crawling oriented truck. I guess they have Jeep and they have the Gladiator, etc., like which is logical. Wagon. But uh, well, power wagons. Power Wagon is hard to define because that was sort of their like, you know, we'll do a, a competitive vehicle to Raptor, but we'll we'll do it on a three quarter ton truck because that's a little bit more Baja like than rock crawling. Um, the logic, though, for GM is that more people live next to an off road park where rock crawling happens than a sand dune, which has always been the head scratcher for me. Uh, with TRX and Raptor R, why is there no uh, street performance truck version of this? Because more people live near a raceway or a drag strip than a sand dune as well. Or just, or just but, a road. Yeah, but sand duning is cool and it is a lot of fun. And I would say if I had the choice, I probably would, you know, go play on a sand dune before I, I took my truck to a drag strip. At any rate, there's that that logic from GM side. So by that same token, I am surprised that we don't see more of an AT4X competitor from Ram and Ford. Why GM did it makes a lot of sense to me. Why the others do it doesn't make sense. Why Toyota doesn't do it is also logical because they just don't sell enough to really bother, I think is the problem. You know, Tundra does not sell in any kind of volume where where diversification would make sense. So I don't think we are ever going to be seeing a dune jumping version of the Tundra. Um, it would require a different frame. It would require different suspension designs. None of that really fits in Toyota's mantra of, of streamlining production, et cetera. Uh, Toyota doesn't even want to make a standard cab truck. So I, I think it's doubtful that we're going to see these, these kinds of off-road variants or even a, a street performance variant. We may very well see more aggressive TRD versions of them, but it's not the same sort of performance or off-road mission that we find in some. It's more along the lines of the AT4X from the GM line, where, to be honest, the stresses involved in rock climbing are much easier to deal with making one consistent frame. So you can you can look at that engineering study and say, 
there is a synergy between on-road truck performance and cargo carrying performance and the off-road mission of this truck. So we can have one frame that can do both of these things for, for that uh, TRD Pro kind of off-roading mission. But the moment you start taking a look at dune jumping and you know the 6,000 pounds that's gonna have to actually go up in the air and then go back down on the ground, that is an entirely different beast. We need different frame attachments. We need different suspension designs, et cetera. And then you no longer have that synergy. So you have to make a lot of trucks in order to be able to justify that next level of development, even as a loss leader. And Toto just doesn't have that volume. Yeah, if you want that, you have to go to SEMA, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, we take a look at the F-150 lineup, and there are there's not just one frame under the F-150. The bodies all look the same, whether we're talking about Lightning or Raptor or the Max Payload F-150 or the Max Toe F-150, etc. The bodies all look the same, but under them exists some four, four to five different frames entirely that, that are completely different processes, completely different strengths, etc., so, uh, you know, the Max Payload F-150 doesn't just mean different springs and different whatever. It's a different frame that they stuff under the aluminum body. So if you're going to take away just one thing from this discussion, folks out on the Internet, it's that you want to go to YouTube and find videos of stuck Hummer EVs <laughs> and ill-fated flights from Raptors, the kind that usually end with the airbags. Those are the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what we haven't seen, though, because they'll get just as destroyed, is, you know, uh, we need what we need is we need TRX jumping this way. We need Raptor jumping this way. And then they just crash right there in the middle and then fall to the ground. That would be the epic YouTube video that is missing. Yes, please, um, America, make this happen. Yes, I have confidence. We need, especially, especially if it's as broy as possible. If we get the the right YouTube channels together for this, and and that would be that would be epic. Monster Energy Drink will sponsor it. It'll be great. Yeah, fabulous, fab. Even a, you know, I suppose we'd have to have drivers. You could use robot driver. What fun would that be? A driver needs to be in imminent danger in this, this, uh, the, at the apex of this. Yeah. I mean, that's why we have seatbelts, right? <laughs> I mean, they have, they have airbags and if this is all timed, right, they are designed for straight on collisions. So, you know, as long as you get that trajectory correct and one doesn't crash into the windshield, that would end badly. But you know, if you get your math, right. <laughs> well, yeah, if it's T-Rex versus Raptor R, then that's fine. But if it's a Hummer, it has to be like one Hummer or two Colorados. Yeah, like, you gotta you gotta nail the launch. It's that, it, that's that's critical. A three-way intersection with one Hummer and two Colorados, and that mm -hmm. that works out the same amount of weight. Okay, we were gonna talk about the uh, demise of the retractable hardtop. I think we're gonna have to save that for the next episode. Alex, if folks want to find us online. Where do they go? All the usual places. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you find us over at the podcast channel and vice versa. You can also find us at uh, youtube.com slash Alex Nauto's EV Buyer's Guide. Uh, the Facebooks are a common place where we post lots of questions and more interactive content. So if you want to see what we're driving this week uh, and uh, thoughtful questions such as why do electric vehicles not have front trunks? Hint, it's all about safety. So uh, head over there to Facebook and check that out. Toodaloo.